the garden. It's one of the more embarrassing things to have happened to me in the last while. Something strange happened to producer Danielle last week. I went to the supermarket to grab a few bits, went to go pay at the machine and was ready to tap away with the debit card. Mm-hmm. They asked me for the pin. I'd obviously tapped too often that week. Oh yeah, that happened to me the other day. Yeah, it's quite annoying, but it was fine. Except for the fact that I forgot my pin. Ah, okay. Yeah. So Now, this in itself isn't that unusual. It's happened to me. I'm sure it happens to lots of people. But then, Danielle's day got weirder. Eating chocolate, as I often do. (laughs) And you know that bit where you try and open your phone using your fingertip, but if you have some kind of food stuff on it, or if, say, you've come out of the shower and you've got the crinkly fingers... Oh, yeah, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. So I was asked to put in the pin for my mobile phone. Mm -hmm. Except I forgot that too. Oh, you had, like, numerical amnesia. What with fingerprint recognition, forgetting your phone pin is probably pretty common too. But normally it comes back to you. Maybe after a good night's sleep. Yeah, no, I never did remember either pin. As if they just fell out of my head, gone. Danielle wasn't so worried about the bank card. She ordered a new pin, moved some money around and just kept spending to a minimum until she received the new pin in the post. The reason she's telling me this story is because of how she reacted when she was unable to access her phone. And I know this sounds ridiculous, but I felt like I had lost a part of myself, even if it was just for 48 hours or two sleeps or whatever. I felt then like an idiot for feeling that way. So I couldn't check social media at the drop of the hat. Not a big deal. I needed to wait to be on my laptop to chat to people, which annoyed other people more than it did me. (laughs) But probably the weirdest feeling I had was not being able to listen to podcasts on the train or oh, do yeah, or yeah. do anything on the train. It kind of horrified me how weird and awkward I felt just sitting beside people. So no headphones in, no screen to check. And I found sitting awkward, just sitting around people. How bad is that? I feel like I'm supposed to say that it's bad, but I also know... We have a lot of ready-made phrases for situations like this. There's... FOMO, or fear of missing out, or first world problem, which basically means when someone who lives a pretty privileged life has a problem that other people would be lucky to have. And Danielle doesn't disagree with that assessment. But 48 hours without access to her phone was a long 48 hours, where she was forced to ponder other things. For one thing, why she was so attached to her phone. And I know how ridiculous this sounds. For two days last week, it was like a technologically induced existential crisis. That's pretty dramatic. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Danielle cannot be the only person who would have reacted this way. Technology has become such a huge part of our daily lives that some even argue it has changed the way we experience our emotions. We've gotten so accustomed over the last 100 or 125 years uh, to constant entertainment that we don't know what to do when we don't have it. This is in marked contrast to 18th and 19th century Americans who were used to monotony, dullness and tedium um, and kind of expected it as part of life. Susan Matt is a professor of history at Weber State University in Utah. She recently collaborated with Luke Fernandez, an assistant professor in the School of Computing there, to write a book called Bored, Lonely, Angry, Stupid, 
changing feelings about technology from the Telegraph to Twitter. There's lots of other books um, or just questions being asked by journalists like, is there a narcissism epidemic? Is Facebook making us lonely? I'm Jordan Erica Weber, and this week I talked to Susan and Luke about their research into why human emotions have changed so drastically in the last couple of centuries, and whether it's true that the dawn of the digital age has created a generation of narcissists. This is Chips With Everything. When researching 19th century opinions on technological advances, the pair looked at letters, diaries and memories for first-hand accounts. For more contemporary opinions, they interviewed people who use various technologies available today. But first, they needed to figure out how to define what an emotion actually is. Easier said than done. The definition of what an emotion is changes over time. So the word really only came into uh, English in the 19th century uh, as a common way to describe feelings. We used to have a morally rich vocabulary to describe our inner states, and it all got boiled down to the word emotion in the 19th century. And often people think of emotions as physiological, non-mental states, that they just are kind of automatic processes in our bodies. So there's a long history of change in what this word means and signifies. It wasn't that we just had feelings, um, that we all, but those feelings and sentiments were uh, mixed up with sort of moral judgment often too. Uh, and now we tend to think of, 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 of emotions as, as sort of disalloyed from moral judgment, whereas that was less common in the past. In the book, Susan and Luke write that vanity, that is, an inflated pride in oneself or one's appearance, was once considered a sinful trait. Nowadays, however, they say it is likely that someone from the millennial or Gen Z generation will take more than 25,000 selfies over the course of our lifetime. Clearly, our thoughts on vanity and narcissism have changed. 18th and 19th century Americans and Europeans as well would have been, I think, horrified as well as puzzled by how often we take pictures of ourselves, um, how often we try to present ourselves. They were acutely aware of biblical injunctions against celebrating yourself. The idea was that we're all ephemeral, transient mortals who won't be on this earth very long. We're also all children of Adam, according to traditional theology, and therefore inherently flawed. So there's not that much to celebrate. We're kind of, um, you know, uh, crooked timber. Um, <laughs> What we argue in the book is that as a result of new technologies, people became much more accustomed to presenting themselves and thinking about how they look to others. Likewise, photography. Some people thought photography would cure vanity because the camera was more honest than a portrait painter who would um, paint out your flaws because you were paying them so much, whereas a camera wouldn't do that. But very quickly, people figured out ways to present themselves beautifully in pictures uh, and spent a lot of time crafting that image. So photography has obviously been around for quite a while now, but if you look at the way people presented themselves in photos, at the beginning, you know, the, the old photos that we see, people are very kind of stoic and they're not smiling. And then a few decades later, you get the introduction of the smile, people start smiling in photos. And then nowadays, we've got all sorts of poses, you know, pouting and, and duck face and things like that. So how did we get here? How did that development happen? 
Traditionally, the smile was seen as kind of a, something a fool or a knave would do in portraiture. It wasn't uh, a valued expression. Um, it, it might mean there was something wrong with you to be smiling so broadly. In the early 20th century, consumerism takes off. Uh, the Kodak Company begins to promote the, the personal camera, the brownie camera, and um, in their promotions, um, they encourage uh, lighthearted photography that you can take at home of your family or on vacations, and you're supposed to be celebrating um, good times. In the 19th century, while people were beginning to learn how to present themselves, there was, still was a seriousness to their photos, both in how they presented themselves and in the fact that they were taking pictures of lots of dead family members as well. That, that soberness really disappears in the early 20th century. So smiling in photos may not have been nearly as common in the 19th century as it is today, but Luke points out that there are similarities between the sorts of things people worried about when they were taking a photo in the 19th century and what people worry about today. Back in the 19th century, women wore more clothes than they did now, but the ankle was still a part of uh, you know, the body that would, would appear below the hem of the dress. And so people were vain about their ankles. They wanted their ankles to be slim. And so a photographer, if, if you didn't have presentable ankles, would invite you to put your ankles back in the chair and then give you a fake pair of feet below the hem of your dress, which worked <laughs> fine, except when um, the woman forgot to keep her ankles back. And then you'd see these, these photographs where there would actually be four sets of feet underneath the hem of the dress. Susan, obviously our feelings of anxiety around how others perceive us have existed since before the internet. You know, even Shakespeare recognised that all the world's a stage. But has the digital age turned us into a different kind of narcissist? Well, one thing we noticed was that our narcissism is, is a strange mix today. Uh, the myth of narcissus is that narcissus stared into a pool and wasted away because he was so entranced by his own reflection. It was a very solitary kind of self-loving um, today on social media, the way we celebrate ourselves is through the likes and eyes of others, through the thumbs up, um, through the approval we get of others. So it's, in some ways, it's a more communal form of narcissism. I think another thing is that social media makes it so much easier to be um, a narcissist than in earlier decades. I mean, you could send somebody a photograph and through the mail, <laughs> but it would take you, you know, two months to get a reply and you probably wouldn't be sending it to 25 different friends. You might send it to a few different friends and family members. So it certainly made it easier and we have uh, expectations that are much higher that people will respond quickly and we hope affirmatively. Yeah, it's not like we don't still police uh, vanity uh, and pride. Um, uh, we're still worried about narcissism today, but the, the discourse has shifted a little bit, and now we value self-esteem, and self-esteem in part um, requires one to have a certain degree of pride about oneself. So uh, we look at um, narcissism uh, in sort of a sort of more neutral lens than our 19th and 19th century forebears did. <laughs> Of course, there's more to life than narcissism. After the break, we look at how technology may have created a lonelier, more bored, and perhaps even angrier human race. When the internet came into being, some people saw it as a new frontier where um, you could have all sorts of freedoms you didn't have in face-to-face -face life, um, that it gave you new liberty to express whatever it was you wanted, good feelings or bad. We'll be back after this. 
Welcome back to Chips With Everything. I'm Jordan Erica Weber. This week, I'm chatting to Professor Susan Matt and Assistant Professor Luke Fernandez about their new book, which looks at the emotional transformation of humankind and the extent to which we should blame technology for our newly narcissistic tendencies. Susan, Mark Zuckerberg gets very excited about the idea of connecting everyone in the world. And obviously, technology has made it quicker and easier to connect with, you know, distant friends and family. But some people argue that this increased connectivity has only made us lonelier. And looking back, you know, even technologies like the radio inspired these kinds of discussions, which I actually really understand. I listen to a lot of podcasts and sometimes I do that because it makes me feel less lonely. And then I worry that, you know, maybe it's a crutch that I just want to fill the room with voices so that I don't feel so alone. What did you find in your research? Well, we definitely found that there was a radio craze, I guess is the word, in uh, the 1920s and 30s, where people were so excited at the thought that the world could come into their homes. And we read fan letters uh, sent to some of the earliest radio stations in America from 1922 and 1923. And uh, in those, people said, you know, I live the life of a shut-in. I'm an invalid and suddenly I have voices coming in and it's changed my life. Uh, And they were pretty positive about radio's effects. But there were already people worrying by the 30s and 40s that maybe radio was flooding our lives with so much sound that we were losing the capacity to be alone anymore. Yeah, and also we've in some sense pathologized loneliness psychologists developed a loneliness scale so that we could actually measure loneliness and a, whole, and a whole loneliness industry developed around then in which people were selling cures for it. Therapists pretended that they had solutions to illness. Psychologists had ways of measuring it. And then, of course, you know, with the development of the internet, these not only are those therapies uh, available, but they're complemented by technologies and and by people like Mark Zuckerberg, who promised to be able to alleviate illness illness through um, technologies of connection. And uh, one other part of the story is that uh, some psychologists who study loneliness argue that loneliness springs up when you have an expectation of a certain number of friends and you don't have that number of friends and loneliness is in the gap between that expectation and that reality and certainly in the age of social media when we can quantify our friends um, although we can also question if there are actual friends but we can compare with others how many we have in some ways social media is heightening our expectations for connectivity and and thus perhaps also heightening our experience of loneliness Susan and Luke also explore the concept of boredom, which is closely connected to that of loneliness. They quote an article from The Onion, a satirical news site, which once wrote, According to reports from across the country, citizens are loudly calling for a device or program capable of keeping them captivated as they move their eyes from a computer screen to a smartphone screen arguing that a new source of video and audio stimulation is vital to alleviating the excruciating boredom that currently accompanies this prolonged transition. I want to reiterate that this quote is from a satirical website, not from any actual report. But in the book, Susan and Luke argue that the sentiment might have some truth to it. One thing a lot of our interviews told us was how worried they were about boredom. One 
college-age student told us that she thought of boredom as dangerous. Uh, people don't know what to do with empty time anymore, and so they immediately turn to their phones. Another person told us they thought that that was exactly true, that he turned to his phone whenever he had an empty moment, and that he knew he was losing something as he did so, but he didn't want to sit there. And psycho psychological studies have confirmed this uh, in one recent one. Um, people would rather give themselves electrical shocks than sit alone with their thoughts. We've gotten so accustomed over the last 100 or 125 years to constant entertainment that we don't know what to do when we don't have it. This is in marked contrast to 18th and 19th century Americans who um, were used to monotony, dullness, and tedium, um, and kind of expected it as part of life. The word boredom didn't even come into English until the 1850s, um, and then uh, gradually became uh, commonplace. Um, we argue that um, over the course of the 20th century, people began to fear boredom more and more. Psychologists began to tell them that they had a right to entertainment, stimulation, and variety in their lives. And so um, that kind of normalized people's expectation that things should be happening all the time. The former telecommunications company Motorola even coined the term micro-boredom to describe those brief moments of inactivity that might be helped by having a phone in hand. And people printed t-shirts with slogans like, an app a day keeps the boredom away. Boredom was seen as something to fix. But Luke argues that technology didn't necessarily fix it at all. It just changed our threshold. In actually annihilating and being able to get rid of all of this micro-boredom, maybe we're bored with our larger selves. And so that's one sort of downside of, be, of, of not experiencing dull moments in your life. Um, lots of te technology pundits talk today about um, you know, taking breaks from technology, digital Sabbaths. The reason being f for that is because perhaps these moments of reverie, of not always constantly being stimulated, actually catalyze creativity that otherwise would be less present in our lives. So in effect, by uh, annihilating micro-boredom, perhaps we're bore bored in a larger sense because we become a less creative species. Luke, another feeling you discuss is that of awe. So artist Kim Dong-kyu captures this with these modern renditions of historical paintings where, for instance, you'll have a person who's standing looking out at a beautiful landscape, but they've got a smartphone in their hand taking a photo. So has our need to capture these experiences so that other people can know that we had them led us to forget how to feel true awe? I, I, yeah, I think that's qu quite possible. The experience of awe has very likely uh, changed from, from what it was two centuries ago. The best example of that is, is when you look up at the night sky. Uh, if you were Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson, and you looked up the night sky, you would be able to see the Milky Way. For most of the people in the 21st century, um, that experience is, is less available to us. So technology in some ways is perhaps creating what uh, one clever psychologist called ADD, and by that we don't mean attention deficit disorder, but awe deficit disorder. When we mediate the experience of, of nature through these technologies, are they helping to amplify awe or are they diminishing it? Originally, awe meant a kind of fearful reverence of forces larger than oneself, and Americans uh, today don't have 
as much of that sense of awe. Um, it was a religious feeling, but it also applied to large technologies like the railroad or the telegraph, where people just thought there are these natural forces in the universe that humans have captured. Maybe they should capture them, maybe they shouldn't, but they're st so strong and they're so powerful. We're mere mortals, should we really be trying to, to use them for our own ends? And people stood in fearful awe of some of the new technologies that were created in the 19th century, like the telegraph, like the railroad. They often commented that they felt that there was something supernatural in them. Mm -hmm. um, and these were technologies, but they were so much larger than any individual human being. Lots of people we interviewed, well, we'd, we'd say, are you awed by your technology? And they'd kind of look at us blankly at first. And, and sometimes we'd say, well, 19th century Americans were awed by the telegraph. And a common response was giggling. Like, that just seemed like an absurd thing to be awed by the telegraph. So one person we interviewed talked about how 21st century Americans merely feel entitled to the new technologies rather than awed by them. One emotion we easily associate with things like social media is anger. It can seem as though the likes of Twitter and Facebook, through exposing us to more information and more people, have made us an angrier human race. They say that the research shows we have always been angry. Technologies like social media have just given us a new avenue through which to express it. Anger was uh, a taboo emotion in the 20th century public sphere. It actually was the idea that we were all part of a team and we needed to work together. Friendliness and cheer cheerfulness and smiling would um, make work life go smoother and increase productivity. That idea came and as a result, personnel departments began to have all sorts of rules against anger in the workplace, anger on the factory floor, and gradually people um, internalized the idea that you shouldn't have explosions of rage or fist fights they had in the 19th century. So the places you could express anger gradually declined over the course of the 20th century. When the internet came into being, some people saw it as a new frontier where um, you could have all sorts of freedoms you didn't have in face-to-face -face life, um, that it gave you new liberty to express whatever it was you wanted, good feelings or bad. Um, and so what we argue in the book is where there used to be limits on people's anger in their day-to-day -day lives, the internet has given them this new space in which to vent. Um, and uh, not everyone vents, but um, a, a significant portion of Americans have found a new freedom. And sometimes they use this anger for really um, socially productive causes um, and fights for social justice. Um, other times they use it just to troll each other. Um, but it gives an opportunity that individuals didn't have before. So Susan and Luke's book concludes that, as many commentators have worried, technology has indeed heightened some of our emotions capitalized on some of the darker aspects of human feeling, and even created new emotions along the way. But neither of them sees this as something to necessarily fear. It may be that we manage to adapt to our technologies. It may also be that we uh, figure out how to adapt our technologies to us. Uh, one thing the history of emotions suggests is that our emotions are changeable. They're not fixed. So um, we can collectively um, work to redefine new emotional norms that might um, be more beneficial to us socially and individually. Figure out um, how we establish self-esteem or human connection um, and what kinds of uh, connections we value most. 
How do you get a sense of affirmation? Is that something we want to just leave to the likes or do we try to find deeper ways um, to affirm our own existence? We should be skeptical of the idea of technological determinism, that there's something inherently democratic or progressive in, in technological innovation. Uh, that sort of whatever future waits for us, we can't just for, sort of wait for it to happen and then count on technology to lead us there uh, in sort of one positive way. We have to take uh, an active role in making sure that that technology is, that we innovate in the, in the appropriate ways to bring about a, a more humane future in which our technology complements and amplifies our humanity rather than degrades it. After chatting to Susan and Luke about how technology seems to have changed what we see as fundamental emotions, I wanted to check back in with Danielle to see if she felt any better or worse about how she reacted when she accidentally locked herself out of her phone. It basically proves that I'm just like a lot of other people, a slave to my phone for fear of being bored for even a second. Huge thanks to Susan Matt and Luke Fernandez for joining me on the show this week. There will be a link to where you can buy their book on this week's episode description on The Guardian website. I've got a question for you. Are there any technology-related events or festivals that you're planning to attend over the next few months? Do you think we should be covering them on the show? Let us know. Send us an email to chipspodcast at theguardian.com. That's all for this week. I'm Jordan Erica Weber. Thanks for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Listener.